Okay. Hello, I'm Ronald Feitmeyer, and this one is an excerpt from a novel, a larger novel that's being ready for publication right now called Wild Boar in the Cane Field by Anika Rana. Um, let's see, the, the name of this piece is The Shrine of Sai Makianvala. Sai Makianvala, the patron saint of the shrine, the keeper of flies, the man who had lain for a hundred years in the grave covered with green, red, and gold satin shrouds, had never taken a bath. I had seen men like that on the roadside. They, they stayed away from the village. They had no use for family or home or food like the rest of us. Amabaga said, God had given them the power to stay alive, and then when he took them, their graves marked a special place for forgiveness and blessings. Sai Makianvala had come to the village at a time when there were no buses or cars or electricity. He had come to remind the villagers, the farm workers, and their families to cherish all life, even flies that contaminated food and carried sickness. He sat motionless for hours, letting the flies and maggots live off the filth of his body. Cleansing himself would kill a living being, Amabaga told me. Dogs would lick the salt from his sweaty body. That brought him closer to God, she added. Such a holy man, she sighed. Everyone going to a shrine and he everyone goes to a shrine and he blesses sinners and saints like when I took Jeanette to pray for some, she got two. She couldn't care for them, but that was on her. Bibi Safia herself went vent before her wedding. Her prayers were answered. She returned to the village within a year. Sai Makianvala doesn't discriminate, and everyone believes in his powers. Everyone. I, not everyone, I thought. Even before I had visited the shrine, Amabaga's veneration of Sain Machiavala's bodily filth intrigued me. To amuse myself and the others at the morning religion lessons with Zakia, the Mulvi's wife, I mentioned the holiness of the keeper of flies. As if the fumes of Sain Machiavala's unwashed body had emanated from the shrine, spread across the cane fields and engulfed Zakia, she breathed heavily and then began her tirade on how even a dead body needs to be washed before it's placed in the ground. I wondered if that's what happened to the holy man, if he had spent his whole life distancing himself from water only to be bathed once he was dead. Zakia must have rambled on in anger about the torturous consequences of flouting the rituals of religion, cleanliness being key, but I was no longer interested in what she thought. I had, however, provided an opportunity for the others to stop memorizing the lines they had been repeating for the last 10 minutes. Visions of hellfire reflected in Malik's dilating pupils as he listened to Zakia's decree. Taj, as if to tempt fate, drew unmentionable body parts on the ground with his finger, daringly close to Zakia's line of sight. Though she never turned her head in his direction, perhaps he knew she wouldn't. The two sisters, Hamida 
and Nafisa, fingers stuck to the words on the page of the Kaida, rocked soundlessly, hypnotized by what they heard. I turned my gaze towards the Mulvi, wondering what he thought as he sat silently listening to his wife, smoking his hookah. I caught his eye, but he couldn't. He looked away and gestured to Taj to bring a fresh coal to the stove, where Zakia sat overseeing the preparation of the day's meal. The lesson stretched to eternity as Zakia's wrath persisted. But when we returned to Amabaga's kitchen, I asked if the Mulvi had ever gone to the shrine to ask for mercy, being married to such a woman. She laughed and said, I would get myself in trouble if such thoughts and promised to take me the next time she went to the shrine. Amabaga kept her promise and took me twice after that. The first time we went to an Eid offering, we went with an Eid offering. Bibi Safia had sacrificed one black and one white goat that year. The white one was for all the luck she needed for herself and the black one in memory of her father, dead for over a decade. Ama Baga distributed a third of the meat among the villagers and kept another third at home. After consulting with Bibi Safia, she took the leftover meat to the shrine, ensuring continued blessings for the crops and the cattle for the next year. Uh, remembering her promise, she said, Bibi, the two girls, Tara and Maria, want to go too? I'll take them for an hour and return before the afternoon prayer. They'll just be a nuisance. They can stay behind. I'm sure there's plenty to do. Bibi Safia grouched. Maria and I stood behind the door of Bibi Safia's room and held hands tightly as if this would give more power to Baga to convince her mistress to take us. We have two pots and you know my knees. I'll have to get them to help me load and unload. We heard Bibi Safia clicking her tongue disapprovingly. We waited for her to suggest that Taj or Malik Baga's sons should help with the task, but she didn't. Maria squeezed my hand and I stopped biting my lip as I heard Safia ask Baga to pass her the keys to her cupboard. I could hear her shuffling to the cupboard door and opening the heavy lock. Here, take the bus fare for the four of you, but don't forget to return the change. Tell the girls not to make a habit of wanting an outing so often. Gulping my anger on Safia's suggestion that a yearly outing was one too many, I let go of Maria's hand and straightened my clothes, excited for this first trip to the shrine that I had heard so much about. The next morning after breakfast, we would take the bus and leave the meat with the cooks of the shrine. They would prepare a meal to distribute among the supplicants with full stomachs, the beggars and holy men would have more power for their prayers. The power of prayer might even help me. What would I pray for? My true mother, a family, a home? I'm sure I didn't sleep that night. I had to think of the perfect prayer so it would be heard at the shrine of Sai Makinvala. Ama Bagan had explained that to be heard, I had to be respectful in my prayer. First, an invocation to God, and then a durud to the prophet. Only then should I think of myself. Hi, my name is
my name is Melinda Marks, and I am the casting director for Play on Words San Jose, and I am very excited and cheered and stoked to have everybody uh, here today. Thank you all for being here. Um, we are very, very happy to be partnering with the uh, San Jose Museum of Art today to be bringing you these pieces. Um, uh, play on words, I just want to say a little bit about it. Uh, we began uh, five and a half years ago. This is our sixth season um, in San Jose, and our, our mission is to uh, provide professional readings of uh, pieces, um, plays, short stories, nonfiction, flash fiction, um, by local writers and playwrights. And um, we've been succeeding in this mission for five and a half years. Um, and uh, we do accept uh, submissions on a rolling basis. Um, anybody is welcome. Um, we generally have two to three shows a year um, where we vet these pieces sort of routinely every couple of months. We hire actors to the pieces that we select and then we invite you all um, to view the readings of them. Um, and here to talk a little bit about uh, the museum proper and our collaboration and all the people that we have reading and uh, contributing today is our production manager, Julia Halpern Jackson. Casting, and you'll see she herself is an amazing performer, so she'll be reading. Um, I'm not a performer, which is why I don't know how to do this. There we go. Um, but uh, thank you all for being here. I have to first of all just say this is the first time we've ever sold out anything. Back out. But um, I have a whole new feeling on mobility right now. 
But um, so we're, because of that, we, uh, we, we asked for people to submit work about migrations and mobility. So it's a very international themed show, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, so yeah, without further ado, we, one more thing. If you want to submit to our organization, um, you can send us an email anytime, uh, regardless of whether or not we have a show date coming up at playonwordssj at gmail.com. We also have a presence. Um, on Facebook, and we also have a YouTube channel, same same handle, and we have a, uh, a blog that we update pretty regularly. It has the names of our contributors and performers and more information about where you can find us and how you can submit. And I'm not saying this specifically to plug us, but basically to plug you. If you have an interest in writing, even if you've never written before and you feel like you have something to say and contribute, we're really interested in hearing your story, and we would appreciate um, your patronage very much. So, thank you very much. Yes, so, <laughs> so, the actual act, so um, we're going to be uh, doing uh, eight pieces, and then we're going to do a short, like, ten-ish minute uh, intermission. You can go check out the cafe, and then we'll come back and uh, finish the show. So, thanks for being here. My name again is Melinda Marks, and this is Chimes by Keenan Flagg. I dreamt of you last night, America, resplendent as you were in your tinfoil hat and star-shaped sunglasses. Wrapped up in your tarnished flag, you swayed softly, a silhouette of morning light. And that's morning with a U in the middle, darling. It blooms of honey-yellow, America. I saw your face like the sprawling fungus on a downed tree, a nurturing exchange somewhere between growth and decay. I saw your face in the tense muscles of my grandmother leaving her home for a life in the West, a life in the lap of sunsets where magazines and heart machines all chimed together in the cries of freedom. Amid this morning, America, you are still beautiful. Though your voice is rasped and your eyes are heavy, I still love you. I still yearn for you. But I am nothing, a part of you, apart from you. Partisan country, partisan line, partisan news, and partisan crime. I feel for you, America. I miss you and your long coasts. Take off your clothes. Don't fear those scars. The belfry is a high climb, but the bell rings far. I dreamt of you last night, America, and I will again tonight. Because you are in need of dreams. And trust me, I have plenty. Thank you. Arcadia Conrad, and this is The New Disease by Ksenia Lakovich. It was 1986 in Belgrade, and I was cleaning the schoolyard on a Saturday morning, just as if it were 1946. Most of the city bathed in fall colors, but Teacher Rada brought us to a slope with bare trees where we raked dead leaves into a grassless corner by the iron fence. We looked like some youth work brigade from a post-war Yugoslav documentary. Teacher Rada talked about these brigades a lot. There were no roads, no railways, she would say. The country in ruins and bridges to build. But we were a different generation. We slept on bare wooden floors without covers. We worked with a bit of food in our mouth and a song on our lips. 
Other teachers watched Eurovision and Dynasty and never organized mandatory cleanups on a weekend. I'm sorry you've been assigned to her, Shreko, Mom had told me at breakfast, her face looking strangely sad above her bright coral necklace. Mom usually impressed teachers with quotes from the latest child psychology books and all went splendid when she showed up at school. But teacher Rada had given her heat about my health excuse for an earlier Saturday project, saying I clearly suffered from a new disease called overindulgence. <laughs> so I tried not to look for excuses this time around. I showed up on time, picked up rakes in silence, climbed to the top of peripheral stairs, and started working. Close to me on the stairs was Tamara, another girl the teacher had a problem with. Her mom wasn't guilty of quoting old foreign books, but of buying flashy foreign clothes, bold pinks and neon greens, big ruffles and thick headbands, which, in teacher Rada's words, were more suitable for the circus than the school. On that morning, Tamara and I raked synchronously, moving in the same inaudible rhythm. After a while, it even became entertaining. We almost danced on those stairs, Tamara in her sparkly purple shoes, which shone as if they'd just arrived from an MTV video. The shoes were decorated with musical notes and had amazing buckles in the shape of a treble clef. Are these shoes from Triste, I asked, as we both paused on the same end of the staircase. Weekend shopping trips to Italy were popular at the time, and some of our neighbors came back with gorgeous jeans and jackets. Mom claimed they were not worth long hours on a budget bus, but I was hoping to convince her the opposite. They're from Padova, Thomas said, her big green eyes beaming with importance. It's a bit longer trip, but the selection is way better. At that moment, Teacher Rada must have realized that Tomer and I were having too much fun, so she commanded that we join the rest of the class at the bottom of the stairs. Are you blind, she said the second we arrived, pointing to a pile of chip bags, juice boxes, and cigarette butts, which laid on a small path between the benches. Is this a schoolyard or a dump yard? This garbage must be taken to a trash container. The nearest container was at least 15 meters away, down the hill, by the basketball court. But how are we going to do that, I asked. We don't have gloves and trash bags. Not even dustpans. You have hands, she exclaimed, lifting her own hands, large, rough, and quite manly. No girl would like to have such hands in her middle age. You think partisans had dustpans when they fought the fascists? You think this country was built with some fancy tools? This country was built with hands. We stood around her in a circle, our weak hands still clutching to our useless rakes. Whenever she mentioned the fascists, I was speechless. She was a proud war survivor, a bronze monument of a woman, while I felt small and fragile, a paper doll of a girl. I'm not allowed to handle trash with my hands, Tamara said. Her voice sounded thin at first, but it grew stronger as it sometimes bounced off the stairs to the large windows of the art room and back to the empty space above our heads. My dad read that AIDS could be transmitted by touch. He warned me to be extra careful. Teacher Rada was clearly stunned by this announcement. For the first time in my life, I noticed hints of fear on her face. As much as she had tried to ignore Dynasty, Rock Hudson's kiss with Linda Evans and his awful American disease, I realized she wasn't completely immune to all that. But could AIDS really be transmitted by touch, I wondered, turning to Tamara. Her eyes were glued to me, and in her look I saw that plea for help, a desperate cry I could not have misunderstood. I hesitated for a moment, because I usually shared information from reliable sources, those thick foreign books Mom liked to read. I tried to avoid spreading rumors and never invented things on the spot. Almost never. <laughs> My mom heard the same thing, I said, from a colleague at work. 
then use those rakes to move the trash to the side. It doesn't have to sit in the middle of the walkway, Teacher Rada said. And we were soon done with the last cleanup from my middle school. that I wrote. It's called Bright Hope. <laughs> Kyungi is my first name. Well, it's the first name ever given to me. It means a bright hope, like the first rays of the morning sun. Once when I had asked my grandmother about my name, she opened her armoire, unlocked a small chest, and pulled out several scrolls of paper that had Chinese characters written on them. One of them was mine. My grandmother had paid for these names, the na uh, mine and the names of my cousins, to be chosen and written out by the local scholar. They were names imbued with meaning and auspicious portent. I held the scroll in my hands and admired the alluring brushstrokes that I could not comprehend. It was strange to think that my name was a commodity that my grandmother had purchased. This elusive thing, a name, is just a word, but it contains for some an identity, and for others, like my grandmother, it contained a destiny. With the purchase of these scrolls, she had secured my birthright. A very long time ago in Korea, names were used as devices to ward off evil. When a precious child was born, she was often given a terrible name to deceive the evil spirits into thinking that the child was worthless. These are, there are rare stories in which we hear of ancient kings being named dog shit or something equally revolting. <laughs> well, times have changed, and most families give their children the very best names. My family immigrated to the United States when I was 18 months old. I started kindergarten at age four without the ability to speak a word of English. My teacher called me Carrie. I've been told because she couldn't pronounce my given name. One of my earliest memories involves sheets of paper all around me and a pencil placed awkwardly in my hands. My mother, who didn't speak any English herself, is teaching me to write my new name. K-A-R-R-Y, over and over again. Within six months, I was speaking English as fluently as the kids down the street. How quickly had I forgotten my Korean tongue? My grandmother is a well-known midwife in our neighborhood in Korea. When I spent my summers in her five-story house as a young girl, my cousins and I would tiptoe around the first floor where the clinic was located. And there were nights when we would wake up to the sound of a newborn taking in its first breath and crying out its introduction to the world. All of my cousins had been born in my grandmother's clinic, guided by her skilled hands. I was slated to be birthed there as well, until complications occurred. My mother had to be rushed to the nearby hospital, where they immediately prepared us for surgery. After I was born, my mother continued to lie in her hospital bed, persistently weak and unable to heal. Every day, my grandmother came to see her and sternly admonished her to get better. 
sometimes yelling, sometimes pleading. Finally, the doctors realized that my mother had suffered from an infection due to a gauze pad that had been left in her uterus after the surgery. She had nearly died. I've heard this story told so many times by my grandmother. Each time she tells it, she adds another bit of information or another piece of dialogue that I hadn't heard before. But the story remains essentially the same. You were this small, this small. <laughs> my, grandmother, my grandmother often concludes, cupping her two hands together when telling the story of how my mother had nearly died while giving me life. My grandmother is one of the few people on this earth who still calls me by my given name. I was Kyungi when we left Korea, and I suppose I still am today. In Korea, Kyungi is the name given to the titular character in a soap opera or mini-drama on television. When I hear my grandmother say my name, it rolls pleasantly along a stream or skips nimbly like little drops of pebbles skidding across a still lake. So much of that is lost in translation. When I hear an English speaker say my name, it sounds clunky and awkward, <laughs> like a missed note on an untuned piano or a blunt object trying to cut a straight edge. Was this why my, my kindergarten teacher decided to rename me? Perhaps she thought the other kids would make fun of me. Perhaps she felt she could shield me from the frustrations of having to hear my name, my birthright, repeatedly maimed and slaughtered by foreign tongues and their incorrect pronunciations. Perhaps she sought to confer upon me a new identity. On rare occasions when my whole family gets together, they will sometimes exchange stories of those nostalgic and murky days when we lived in Korea. There's so much about that part of my life that I still don't know. At times I wish I could remember them too. And then my grandmother will recount with watery eyes the day we left Korea. Your two little chopstick legs were dangling out from under your mother's arms. She would then hold out her index and middle finger, indicating that my 18-month-old legs had been that small. How would those little legs survive in such a big country, she laments, reliving the heartache of seeing us go. Today, my cousin has a daughter named Sophia, and she calls me Auntie Carrie. Once, when Sophia was still quite a baby, my aunt solemnly took me aside and discreetly informed me that in Korean, the word Sophie means to take a piss. <laughs> she says to me, but they had already given her that name. What could I do? I just kept quiet. She whispered to me in despair. I nodded in sympathy and smiled. Don't worry, Auntie. Sophia is a beautiful name in English, and at least this way, the evil spirits will stay away.
My name is Yvette Del Toro, and this is Pedacitos by Angela Villarreal Ratliff. One. Apart for over three years, you pick me up at the San Jose airport. In your car, we compare moldy memories, review hazy, moving pictures, fill in gaps with dabs of gray. We were 10 children. I was eight, you 13. Our eldest sister was 18, losing her grip, slipping away to her imaginary universe. We skipped this part. No hue can brighten pitch black. At the Santa Cruz Wharf over hot clam chowder, you sketch a map of our childhood homes. So many. We traverse to where poverty and migrant years shadowed the sun. Penta napkin draws us back to Thermal, Cochelita, Indio. Mile upon mile, we retrace our dust-covered family tracks. All those places we lived in, never realized they were so close, we say. Minutes become years of revelation, touching on neighbor women who were prostitutes for nearby braceros, whose shirts we helped mother iron for spare pennies. You update me on the Coachella barrios of home, where poor familias still barely get by, where Thermal's dust acres have been transformed into lush golf courses and overly tamed lawns of millionaires, shrewd dust miners. Two, at your home, you show me your latest genealogical results, familial arms expanding globally. A photo album sings of your recent travels to Mexica, Mexica ruins and grand pyramids. My veins recognize the lands of our wandering roots, hills and mountains that cradled empires of our antepasados, where Motecuzuma II, Cuitlahuac, and Cuauhtémoc reigned, where Cortés raised Tenochtitlan, built Nueva España over rulers' layered ruins, becoming Mexico, birthing our forebearers. Like archaeologists, we inspect ancient bones, mold new life from their altering dust. When the Bearded Lady Found Love by Alison Landa. <clears throat> Even before I started growing a beard, I realized love might be elusive. It wasn't exactly some aha moment. I was 10 years old, hanging out in our suburban San Diego living room, a tribute to the 1970s in orange and brown tones the furniture fluffier than our dog. <laughs> I was noodling around on a rowing machine that no one but me ever used, listening to the Everly Brothers on the hi-fi. <clears throat> then the voice, speaking low and slow and directly to me. It'll take a while. How could I possibly know what that meant? But I did. Two years later, the hair appeared, hanging out as if it had a right scratchy under my hand as if to say, hi, I'm here. It's not often that your fate announces itself to you. When it does, you'd best listen. But I didn't. Neither did my parents, who failed to seek medical attention for me. Instead, my mother took me into the bathroom, walls stained from many cigarettes she smoked on the sly there, and taught me to shave my face. It'll take a while. 
The voice grew louder and more pointed over time. It became a comfort, a mantra, when my mother told me the facial hair was unattractive, when I watched my friends start to date. I had plenty of boy friends, but no boyfriends. Years later, I would learn that the hair was the result of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, a condition that gives its female sufferers with obesity, infertility, and male pattern balding in addition to the extra hair growth. <clears throat> it grew thick and black, forcing me to shave twice a day to keep it under control. But I could never prevent people from seeing what they were going to see. I developed a raunchy, loud persona to give people something else to notice about me. By the time I was 28 years old, returning from a half-year stint teaching English in the Czech Republic, it was finally honed. Meanwhile, love was indeed taking the slow boat. That didn't mean I hadn't been on dates, hadn't had sex. I'd done both while overseas. It made me feel less alone when it was happening. And then once it was over, I was emptier than I'd been before. But I couldn't just concentrate on that. I had bills to pay. I returned to California with my rent overdue and my phone disconnected. I needed a job. Moving to the Czech Republic was a short-term solution to my struggle to make a living through freelance writing. Like so many others who saw their passports as magic wands, I hoped to write the great American novel, to find lasting love. Instead, I drank too much beer and learned how to curse in a foreign language. <laughs> Enter Bayer Corporation. Its Berkeley campus sits glaring out at the San Francisco Bay. Gates and guards, a stark rebuke to all who might contemplate invading. My work was to play with Microsoft Word while occasionally cheating with Excel. My office was a cubicle in a trailer so lopsided and without personality that it almost featured its own variation on charm. Those who worked inside had made no effort to disguise its flaws. I should be so brave. My boss settled me into my quarters and handed me a clutch of meaningless documentation, left me to ponder my fate. What I didn't realize was that my fate would walk right up to me, sounding as if he had sucked a helium balloon for breakfast. But as we talked, I realized I actually kind of liked him. Adam, 24 years old, two years, two years removed from graduation at Berkeley. Blue eyes behind metal glasses, curly, close-cropped dark hair. More than anything, he struck me as the kind of person who was selflessly thoughtful. He was the one who would bring you a chair without waiting to be asked, who would send flowers not to rectify any wrong, but just because and he was taken, very much so. Never before had I met someone who seemed so at home with who he was, so aware of what could be seen as a liability, and so unwilling to let it get under his skin. He was a unique one. He was confident. I hated him for it. Steph works at Children's, he told me one day over lunch. She's trying to get me a job there. Research. I study genetics at Cal, so it's kind of the logical next step. When I realized I didn't want him to leave our shared workplace, I knew I was in real trouble. Love had arrived, but what to do about it? Every night he packed up and went home to his girlfriend. He was not mine to touch or kiss or caress or 
trust in that way of intimate partners. Then came the carry house, the dive bar just steps from my front door. There was him and there was me, and there were the pictures I was showing him, Prague and Paris and London to boot. And then there was his arm around me. And somehow, we were kissing hard, hard enough that my teeth hurt for hours afterwards. <laughs> I never enjoyed being kissed, never could tolerate having my face caressed. He did it in a way that made me know I was seen, accepted, and loved. For the first time since that little girl realized she was going to have to wait longer than she might have liked for someone. I was normal. Eventually, he broke up with his girlfriend. What I began to learn was that falling in love is as much a process of forgetting as realizing. We start out objective, but the more our minds grow softer around the edges, the further our walls drop, the more we see our beloved through the lens of our passion. Eventually, I stopped noticing his voice. Later on, he would tell me that he never noticed my beard. How, when that was the first thing I ever thought about when I entered a room, when I met someone for the first time, when I glanced into a mirror? I started to let him see me in the mornings, tousled, my face unshaven. I watched for a reaction, almost hoping for one. I never saw anything. And I never discussed the matter out loud with him. He never brought it up, neither did I. Not until he got down on one knee in front of a small fringe festival audience at under St. Mark's. Not until we began to talk about hiring a wedding photographer. It was hard enough to let Adam point the camera in my direction, but to let a stranger do it. I need to, I have to, we were back at our Berkeley cottage, surfing on our separate laptops. I honed in on my screen. I couldn't look at him as the words dropped. Look, I said, squinting at the pop-up that had somehow evaded my adblock software. I don't want to look like a man in my wedding photos, okay? I just don't. My head fell into my hands. Could I have accepted a bearded woman as my partner? How much different was my beard than his voice? You're crying, he said. I have a beard, I said. The words hung like vapor for a single second. Even if I could have taken them back, I wouldn't. You have gorgeous brown eyes, he said, and a great butt, and you're an adventurer. And did I mention you have a great butt? <laughs> Love had truly arrived. But before we made it official, I was going to do something about the hair. When I told Adam I planned to have laser hair removal, he said, he said, sounds expensive. Then he accompanied me to each session and handed his credit card to the receptionist. The sessions were many. The, the pain was plentiful. The results were stunning. You still have a great butt, Adam said. <laughs> we were married April 6, 2008. Seven and a half years later, we had a son, someone who had never seen me as I once looked, but who also represented a chance for me to show him what his father had shown me so viscerally. <clears throat> Love sees what you are, not just how you appear.
It's that love. The love I waited. The love that was in the wings longer than I probably knew. Devotion that speaks in a slightly higher register. called The Start by Laura Domingo Short. It's 5 a.m. and I find myself tossing and turning, willing to go to sleep and get what little rest I can before the alarm goes off. I haven't slept much all night. I've been thinking about all the work I need to get done, all the work maybe I should have already gotten done, but I just haven't because, because to me it's draining, unexciting, unfulfilling. It leaves me empty, it leaves me blank. I dragged myself out of bed with enough time to make myself look presentable and head out the door. I get into the office and stare blankly at my screen. I am surrounded by colleagues who seem genuinely excited to wake up every morning and get back to work. They're happy. They are fulfilled. What's their secret? But more importantly, what's wrong with me? Why am I devoid of that excitement? Why can't I find that motivation? Why can't I just be happy with what I'm doing? The day ends. It was long. I've gotten work done. I'm not sure if it's enough. I'll add it to the list of things to agonize over at 5 a.m. It's, it's incredible how easily we let things become routine, how effortlessly we define something as unavoidable. That's just the way things are. It's a necessary evil. And this fabricated sense of inevitability ensnares us. Sometimes we pry those jaws open and make our escape. We find another job. Maybe we get a better title, a higher salary. But it's not too long before we see that all we've done is dashed into a shiny new trap. And that higher salary, those benefits, that prestigious company, merely become extra teeth in the snare. Because how could you possibly give all that up? I followed that bait for years. Maybe all the years, if I'm being honest with myself. And if I'm really being honest, I built that trap. I sharpened those teeth myself. I let the prestige, money, title, what others might think of me ensnare me so tightly. I'm not sure where the trap ended and I began. And then I realized I was asking myself the wrong questions. It wasn't, why am I devoid of excitement? Why can't I find that motivation? Why can't I just be happy with what I'm doing? It was, why haven't I just walked away? Why don't I explore that exciting unknown? Why do I keep following that path so clearly marked, here be traps? And it became clear that that escape did not lie in prying open the trap and moving forward only to step into another snare. It required chewing off my foot and stepping in any other direction. Yes, it's gruesome, I know, but that's what you have to do to escape that sort of trap. Today was the last day at my job my high-paying tech job, and my next job is yet to be decided. I am hobbling off to explore that exciting and slightly scary unknown. I am letting myself wander into uncharted territory. I am navigating new seas. Because it's better late than continuing to be miserable. Better late than always wondering what could have been. Better late than feeling empty, blank, Better late than fill in the blank. 
better late than... Hi, my name is Thomas Times. I'm going to be reading a piece called Make a Muscle by, Mark, my, by Mike Carpa. My grandmother's strapped to a gurney in her South Texas nursing home lobby. She spits curses as my mother argues with the managing nurse. My grandmother doesn't know me, my mom, anyone. All that's left of the woman she used to be is belligerence. Turns out, you can write poetry, dress down a sitting governor, be able to talk the hind leg off a donkey, and still have everything taken away. So that all that's left is the crap. So that when your daughter tries to bring you back to the nursing home after an emergency hospital stay, Nurse, Nurse Joyce will say to your daughter, no, we will not take her back. We got her out and, that, and there's no way she's moving back in here. I'm standing beside my grandmother's gurney. A fraction of an inch separates me from the bicep of a powerful paramedic who's piloted the gurney here from the hospital. I feel attraction, danger. It's 1995, only a couple years since a Texas judge gave a couple of straight guys a year's probation for killing a gay man. It took some convincing for my mother to get me here. But I'm nice, so I'm helping out. It's the height of the, of the Corpus Christi summer, of scorching car seats and parking lots too hot to walk across. The song on everyone's radio is La Nina Fresa, telling of a spoiled girl being picked with tepachi. Tepachi is only mildly alcoholic brew, but still, La Nina refuses. Tepachi yo, que te pasa? Para nada. Mom is relentless. Where are we supposed to go, she demands. We have nowhere else. Mom looks ready to break. We started several years ago in a home that smelled of orange blossoms and hibiscus and have worked our way down. Each facility smelling more of urine than the last. Mom glares at Joyce, who is corralled in circular reception station. But Joyce glares back, not the least bit intimidated. She looks like she will surely emerge triumphant from this contest, corral or no. An old guy, maybe 85, small white hair, very frail clasps the counter that edges the reception station as he walks. A not-quite-as-old woman crosses the lobby in a virtual web, mumbling and mumbling as she paces. Ayudame, por favor. Do you love me? Ayudame, por favor. Do you love me? I stand beside my grandmother as she yells, God damn it! God damn it! And I think when my time comes, I will be accepted eagerly into nursing home because I am meek. A rib twinges as if the thought cracked curtilage. The frail old guy grips his way along the circular countertop. He nudges against me and stops. I'm, I'm in his way. He, he's not going around. A door opens somewhere. Another radio is playing. Que la servan tepachi? No, no. Que la servan cabeza? No, no. The old woman mumbles for help, and the love 
as the little guy wobbles there unseen. He's blind. Ayurame, por favor, do you love me? I shift to make space for the blind man, but, in, but am hemmed in by the paramedic. He's young, he's handsome, with dark hair that looks as soft as the back of a dove, and his arms and chest swell with strength. To let the blind fellow pass, I will need to physically push against the paramedic's arm. This is an arm I can fall in love with. It would not be the first time I'm someone who never had biceps. When I was in junior high, somebody made a muscle, and I asked, how do you do that? <laughs> I thought there was a trick to it. Every single guy in my gym class laughed as I was already the boy who had been trapped in weightlifting. They had put me in the bench press machine, and I couldn't budge the bar. They took off weight after weight until finally all they had left was the frame. No weights, and I couldn't lift that either. The bar descended to my scrawny chest and I was pinned like a formaldehyde bug. I was pinned for decades. But now, I've claimed my space in gyms. I drink carbohydrates within the first hour of working out and consume the requisite grams of protein within the first hour, six days a week. I've built long twitch fiber strand by strand until I too can make a muscle. As my grandmother curses, the old lady mumbles, and the old man bumps and bumps against me like a fly at a window. I think, maybe my grandmother has done something right. Who wants to be left with nice? I press against my paramedic swelling bicep to clear the way for the walking man. I do not know if this guy is straight or gay, but why not go down swinging like my grandmother? <laughs> I smile at the paramedic. His name tag reads, Joe. Ayurame, por favor, do you love me? Make a muscle. intermission about 10 minutes uh, there's a great uh, cafe right here but before we do there's a few other people I forgot to thank our amazing volunteer photographer Brandon Frederick thank you we also have two visual artists here Michelle Frey and Clifton Gold a visual interpretation of the work you see, so I encourage you to go by and check out the work they're doing. Um, and thank you to Ryan Albers for filming as well. So, Again, this is Postcards from the Underground by Tony Press. The war machine was big and well-armed, but it moved slowly. Jimmy and his cohorts were quicker. He mailed a postcard to his mother every Tuesday, rain or sun or snow. She responded as soon as she received it, never forgetting to insert a $10 bill into her envelope. She also included a written message, though not on stationery. Instead, her quaint penmanship filled both sides of a pale blue index card. She told him of her week, the garden, the bridge club, Unwritten, but always visible, was her prayer for his health and her plea 
for his return. She was at home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in the small brick house on Highlington Street where Jimmy had been raised. Her husband, James Sr., working with his father, had built the house, completing it in September of 1940, six months after their marriage. It took some time, but Jimmy was born just after the war in March, 6, March 1946. Jimmy was now 21 and far from home, way out west, bouncing between Wyoming and Washington, Idaho and Oregon. Words on his cards, cards which boasted brilliant color photos of vast lakes, roaring rivers, and snow-capped mountains. Those words rarely deviated. Hi, Mom. Doing okay? Hope you are too. Jay. She read them twice, in case there was something she'd missed. <laughs> and always, too, printed in capital letters, a general delivery mailing address. Perhaps the same as the week before, but just as often not. And the date, July 3rd, 1976, 1967. July 10th, 1967. July 17th, 1967. July 24th, 1967. A month with five Tuesdays was a good month. When his father was 21, he was a corporal in the army. Later, he worked for and eventually owned the first roofing, heating, and insulation company in Portsmouth. He died of cancer. Asbestos, they said, in the Veterans Hospital over in Manchester when Jimmy was 16. Jimmy would not be a soldier. He would never understand how his father had been one, had, had enlisted, war or no war. Jimmy might do any manner of things, maybe even roofing, but he would never wear a uniform, never carry a gun. He hadn't been the greatest student, but he knew vocabulary, and when Miss McClure taught them nemesis, he knew exactly what it meant and what it didn't. There were schoolyard issues, and sometimes he and Rocky Soldovani were almost that, at loggerheads, a phrase his mother liked to use. But he had no real nemesis. Not then, not now, and certainly not across any ocean. He was not going to shoot another soul, whether in Vietnam or Vegas or Virginia or anywhere in between. He had but a single life to lead, and he would live it not for his country, but for himself. And no, no, not just for himself, but for the entire world, somehow. His job now was twofold. Firstly, helping others escape the clutches of the military, and secondly, key to the first part, avoiding it himself. If his mother were ever truly happy, he thought, it could only be a, a timid happiness. He wanted more. He was not going to scratch out days on a calendar, silent and stubborn, year after year after year, and then die the way his father had, the way so many did. He was going to live without apology. He would surely fall a few times, but that was to be expected with any real movement. Her latest pen message, this time in red ink against the light blue, delivered far more content than usual. Two cards, each one packed with writing, embraced and protected the sawbuck, his father's odd name for $10 bills, and Jimmy almost spilled his beer, a tall, cold Falstaff, when he reached this section. My goodness, Idaho. Your father served a year in Idaho, guarding Italian prisoners of war. When he came home in 45, he swore he'd made a big mistake by enlisting. I should have been a CO, he said, a conscientious objector. He even told me he wished he'd been brave enough to do that. Imagine. And her final line, 
He'd be proud of you doing what you're doing. Jimmy was in Pocatello working with a group of resistors in a town where such things were not done. In a few days, he was going to drive two guys up to the Canadian border where they would cross and be met by somebody called Alex, though that probably wasn't his real name. They'd met once a few months ago at a college campus in Spokane, Washington, and had spoken via payphone on a weekly basis since then. In fact, Alex knew him only as Quincy, which was his father's middle name, and not his. Jimmy sat long after Monday's midnight in a stained booth in an almost empty Denny's. The sole waitress was leaning against the counter, talking music with one of the cooks. Soon, a series of temptations hits poured from the jukebox. He fiddled with a packet of sugar, but did not open it. He touched his dying cigarette to a new one, inhaled deeply, and sipped his coffee and began the postcard he would mail before noon. Hi, Mom. Mom, there's so much I didn't know. If I ever get back, I have so much to ask. I love you. Jimmy. crash, of course, and the depression that followed. There was all of that social turmoil and fear that came with it. My father seemed to think that my grandparents might have lost what meager savings they had. My grandmother only ever said they came back because they came into land, a 60-acre small holding guarded fiercely through land wars and civil war and upheaval. There was no one left to farm it with every one of my grandfather's many brothers beyond in New York. Maybe that 60 acres of rocky land in the west of Ireland seemed like a safer bet than clinging by their fingernails to the fringes of the middle class in Staten Island. There was one last story my father told us about New York, however. My grandparents' first child was born at the hospital there, a girl that my grandmother named Mary, like nearly all first-born Irish daughters of the time. My grandfather was kept out of the delivery room, as was normal in those days, and when he was finally called to the hospital to see my grandmother and their first child, it was only to be told that he was a father no longer. The baby had died shortly after birth, so he found himself childless before he had even seen his child. And they never told him to turn up to the hospital like that, the shock of it. As a teenager, when my father told us this story, I would see my grandfather in my mind's eye, bounding up the steps of the hospital, hopes high, a neat trilby on his head, wearing his Sunday suit and tie and carrying a bunch of flowers in his hand. Reaching the doors, he pauses mid-bound as a stern matron approaches him to deliver the news, and he freezes, speechless, the flowers dropping out of his hand, crushed flowers and crushed dreams. I can't possibly know what really happened. My grandfather was a quiet man and, in a way of his time, never spoke of his feelings if he could help it. My grandmother did often speak of her first baby, however, her American daughter, who barely lived. If anyone ever said she was the mother of eight children, she would always remind them with a smile that she was, in fact, the mother of nine. Not eight. And everyone would smile back and nod in silent recognition of her loss and a lifelong gone. 
This sorrow seemed to be my grandmother's abiding memory of her life in New York and maybe why she never spoke about the year she lived there. The only window I had into that time in their lives was their crumbling photo album from those first years of their married life. It sat up high on a shelf with other forgotten papers, yellowed from years of peat smoke. The first time I leafed through it, I was about 10 years old and fascinated by the fun young people in the photos. There was my serious, pious grandfather, smiling like I had never seen, lined up with his brothers in their smart coats and trilbies, a skyline of half-built skyscrapers and cranes behind them. My grandmother sits happily on Midland Beach, a popular beach resort of the day, surrounded by friends. There they were on outings to upstate New York, Sullivan County, my grandfather in an old-timey bathing suit in the river. There were even some fun, goofy photos with their friends, making faces for the camera, a 1930s version of an Instagram feed. No sepia filter needed. <laughs> my grandparents left for home in 1933. Their baby had been born and died the previous year, so it is tempting to conclude that this loss signaled the end of fun and youth. Maybe it hurt them more than anything else, more than any stillborn American dream. They did what xenophobes today want immigrants to do. They went back where they came from. My grandmother was pregnant by, with my uncle by then, but he was born in Ireland, not an American. He grew up to become a priest, a staunch defender of the faith, something that was a source of immense pride to my devout grandmother. From my ear, earliest years then, I've known that immigrant stories do not always go in one direction. Some of us emigrate and stay for good. Some of us stay for a while to build up new lives, but move on eventually to somewhere else. And some of us do indeed go back to where we came from. Which immigrants stay and which ones leave? Which immigrants are welcome and which are not? The rhetoric from some today wants to classify immigrants into those who are useful and wanted, and those who are takers from shithole countries who bring violence and drugs. Those who immigrate for the right reasons, and those who are just cheating the system. There is a desire to sort the wheat from the chaff, the refugee from the economic migrant. But immigrant lives are never that simple. No one's life is simple, easy to categorize. Was my grandfather a refugee from political oppression and civil war, having been interned without trial under suspicion of terrorism during the Anglo-Irish War of Independence, a refugee from an early British prototype of Guantanamo Bay? Or was he simply another economic migrant looking for a better opportunity in life? Like most immigrants, I think my grandparents were looking for a combination of political refuge and economic opportunity, and maybe even just a change of scene, a fresh start. Immigrants do not always fit into the neat categories assumed by our modern visa classifications. Economically, my grandparents would have certainly had a better life in New York than they did in rural Ireland, raising eight children on a small holding in hard economic times through the rationing of the Second World War can't have been easy. They were no longer lonely, however. My grandmother isolated in an empty suburban house waiting for my grandfather to get home from work. She had her neighbors again, her mother-in-law, her own family all around, her people she knew and trusted, my grandparents were fortunate that they had a safe place to go back to. Life as an immigrant can be lonely. It requires strength and determination to build a new life from nothing. Not everyone is able for it. My grandfather said he saw the best of people, people who had fought for Irish freedom like he had, succumb to drink and despair in the Bowery in New York, lost in a foreign city, away from everything they'd ever known. If the modern asylum system had existed then, these men would have counted as political asylum seekers, fleeing Ireland's civil war and the dire rural poverty of a country barely emerging from years of colonialism and war. Yet to the prejudiced American eye of the day, these broken men appeared as drunken Irish bums, losers who had nothing to offer this country. 
Today, suspicion about immigrants and their right to be here is stronger than it has been in many decades. Some of the same hateful rhetoric and smear tactics that sank the 1928 presidential campaign of Al Smith, the first Catholic to run for president, resurfaced in 2016. This time, the hateful rhetoric was directed at the first woman who dared to aim for the White House, Hillary Clinton. The winning campaign appealed not to a grand vision for a greater America, as claimed, but to the narrow prejudices of small town and rural voters against urbanites, liberals, and immigrants. The hurt caused by 2016's election rhetoric still resonates with many of us. As a relatively prosperous resident of Silicon Valley, it would be easy to step back and dissociate myself from the immigrant experience. I could term myself an expert and hide behind my racial and economic privilege. I am white. I speak English. When Trump talks about building a wall to keep out bad hombres, I can assume he is not talking about me. Yet I feel an obligation. I come from people who have had to immigrate for a better life and seek safer places outside their home countries, even if they eventually went back to where they came from. I had the chance to come back again, even if it cost me something too. I can't sit in privilege and watch as we seek to deny that chance to others. This is Hija de Texas, Daughter of Texas, by Angela Villarreal Radcliffe. The body seeks the way back home, and mine the long way there. I followed the bloody trail to Europe, pre-Columbian Mexico, the Mexican-American War, and then to Texas, donde nací, Texas. From the Catuan Teixa, meaning friends or allies, the second largest state, a country really, from vast plains and rich valleys to snaking rivers and mountainous chains under a lone star banner with echoes of six flags still waving their altering hands, saluting nations that once claimed the land, colonizing, encroaching on Apache, Cado, Guahuiltecan, Comanche, Choctaw, Jumano, Kickapoo, Kiowa, Tonkawa, amigos y enemigos, embroidering a grand history, birthing wondrously mingled sons and daughters. Today I am at home in my Texan skin. Piel canela, voz bilingüe, corazón tejana. Thank you. is Norma by Michelle Suzanne Myers. Norma feels the day of the dead squeeze her chest and start her eyes stinging. It holds no fascination for her, neither is it a day of holy obligation, though it obligates her to remember her dead mother, whose funeral she could not attend, stopped as she was by papers of status. Imagínate. Papers of status por la, muerte de, por la muerte de tu madre. If you go to your mother's funeral, you never come back. 
you never come back and make the money, the money that honors your mother, in honor of your mother, to send home to feed and to educate and to pay the medical bills of all your siblings y sus hijos y sus hijos y sus hijos. Norma's money is an obligation of her heart that keeps her mother's entire family alive. Norma has lived apart, very far apart, from her family in northern Mexico since she was 17 when she crossed over, and she is now 46. Norma's beautiful eldest daughter dresses up as La Catrina Novia, a pure white, lace-adorned skeletal bride with her boyfriend, the adoring Novio Catrino, the shadows deepening his eyes. They parade through downtown San Jose, two lovebirds who did not have to make the three-day-long journey with the traffickers through the Sonoran Desert. Her daughter and almost son-in-law, who find the marigolds and candles and the aesthetic of the Day of the Dead enticing, colorfully Instagrammable. They did not have to try to sleep on one side of an unknown room. The lone woman on a flattened mattress, the other side of the room crammed with the sleeping bodies of men. No. For Norma, el Dia de los Muertos is for her mother, her tough-as-nails mother who died two years ago. Norma, the only child of nine who is north of that border, is that same northern side of the border where children in chain-linked cages slept and waited. The very same side of the border where a lethal border patrol sometimes shoots tear gas at starving, homeless, and tired little boys and tiny girls. Norma, undocumented and dauntless, unable to go back and audacious, unable to touch, to hug, and unfaltering, unflinching in her devotion. She no longer has the luxury of truly fighting with her siblings, the phone connections now so thick, so thin and flimsy. She posts the photos of her darling Catrina Novios posing on San Fernando Street, a bit of the enormous cathedral that stands witness to that migrant worker, Joseph, at the edge of her picture. She makes her altar to her mother in the back office at the restaurant she runs, <clears throat> as she spends more time there than at her apartment. She sends an enormous bouquet of pink flowers for the graveside celebration, and she sends her monthly remittance, as always. Claro que no son todos los días, pero seguro en los días especiales. Her tears flow as she slices meat and mixes her popular salsas. Do the tears somehow reach the earth and pass through the asphalt? Do they somehow drift and pass through deep underground and make their way down, 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 touching the land that is scarred by sepulchral weird walls? Her pink flowers can trespass through the cemetery's paths, undetained, their names not even known, powerful flowers that even without authorized status, show up, replacing her at her mother's candle-covered grave. The flowers last three days, then the petals fall and touch the dirt. Pink, sacred flowers, 
privileged in a way that she is not. And maybe the migration of the petals bring themselves to her tears. I pull the cover back off the carriage. 
There is the bloody, beating organ in all its glory. I'm surprised to see it has eyes, and they look at me. I smile at it, then I pick it up. It squirms toward my chest, where it too clearly wants to return. My insides ache, and it all turns dark. I awaken alongside my baby, who looks up at me smiling. My insides still ache, though the blood is gone. All I can do is hold him to me, and cry, and cry. Three. The place is one I have been to before. A campground on the California coast where I once did mushrooms back in my 20s. I am laughing and my face aches. I am pointing at the mirror and saying, I know you! <laughs> and each time I say it, the face in the mirror starts laughing harder and harder. And its overwhelming ecstasy sends me reeling again. I am in the public bathroom and people glance over as they walk by, maybe bemused or concerned at the whole scene. Only now I see clearly the face in the mirror is not mine, but it is my baby's. And I am no longer in my 20s. There are no drugs involved, but the sky is melting into all different colors, like a kaleidoscope that is bleeding its colors into the eye of the storm. I am giddy and as light as a feather. Nothing makes any sense, and I think my head is falling off, but I am in the midst of the most wondrous and enthralling love and nothing else matters. Some time has passed, and the loss of context no longer frightens me, though I occasionally wonder if it has turned me half mad. The impossible has happened, and we have lived to sing the nascent truths that inscribe themselves on us daily, like the bearers of a magical secret. We pass into the familiar terrain, the terrain of longing and loving, bearing a tale that will color it anew. Whoa. Conrad. New York City. We're at the Palm Court in the Plaza Hotel at my mother's insistence. She just pointed out Yoko Ono's table, those huge sunglasses. I hear Nana's voice before I see her. I won't have another, not until I tell you the story of how I got this coat. I turn. She's sitting at the bar. My great-grandmother's hand swirls protectively around her glass. She's dead, but relentless. <laughs> it's 2018, and she won't leave, so I imagine the palm court the way it used to be, even to the bartender in his white jacket. I look into her piercing eyes, level, judging, her voice slowed to the slight draw from the gin already in her system. I left Dayton in the middle of the night and took a bus to Cleveland, where I caught the train for the east. I was headed for New York, and I had no intention of looking back. I had, what is the line? Three bucks, two bags, one me. She takes a tiny sip. My father was a grocer. I was the middle child sandwiched between two boys. They were just stay-at-home boys, married nice girls kind of thing. My parents were religious and dour and tired of my refusals to marry the available fellows in town. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. A life sentence of Sunday chicken and lemonade stands and church on Wednesday nights. It wasn't for me. After the driest graduation party on the block, the last guest leaving at 8 p.m. and me standing in the kitchen with my mother wiping while she washed, she looked at me and said finally, well, good night, dear, say your prayers. 
So I said goodnight to my mother. It would be a while before we spoke again. In those days, there was a dining car on the train, even if you were going coach. You could go if you were willing to pay. I put a little smear of lipstick, Rose of Avalia, it was called, my shade, which I saved up for and purchased at the pennies counter, better than Woolworths. And I straightened my stockings, pinched my cheeks, and when they tried to seat me with a maiden aunt from Duluth or someplace, I pretended I didn't see where the porter had to sit, and I sat instead with the most good-looking man there. And that was Jerry. He seemed a touch younger, so I smiled more and tossed my hair and got him to pay for lunch, which was a good thing because I had two liverwurst sandwiches to last me the entire journey. She recrosses her legs. Seam stockings, pointed toes. I am suddenly self-conscious of my athleisure wear. We stir our drinks. He was the first. I followed him back to his berth, and afterwards he told me he was headed to Florida to start a dancing school, and why don't I come with? In those days, if you didn't have fare the whole way, but you were in the sleeping car, they didn't ask as many questions. So we stayed on the train for three more and had a grand old time down to Dayton Beach. And I married him in the courthouse and we started the dancing school and Lena was born there. Now all was forgiven in Cleveland. Mother and dad came to Florida to see where, when she was born. They were just thrilled. She examines her flawless manicure and pats her coif, straightens her hat, the little veil on top. Her eyes narrow a bit. You know, your grandmother asked me once when she was eight or nine about sex, and I told her, just watch it. You can ruin your life in 20 minutes. <laughs> she was gorgeous by the time she was 12 or 13. By the time she was 15, there was a picture of her with a couple of wolfhounds on leashes. She was dating some very rich men, and she was 15 years old. It wasn't like it is now. There were no laws about age. There was another man by this point, Henry Wyatt. He was very wealthy, a newspaper man. His wife was in a sanatorium, and his girls were at a school ramping up for their debutante balls. A little older and no looker, but here is where one makes a choice. We had enough to get by on, but we weren't moving forward. There would be very little to move us upward and Jerry had turned to drink. And one day I came home and he was asleep in his chair in the middle of the day and I thought, I am barely 30. I still have my looks. What in the world am I doing here? And I left your grandmother in her crib and went straight out and accepted that lunch date with Henry Wyatt and that was that. Your grandmother Lena was too young to remember but for a while she lived at his place in Palm Beach with his staff while I was getting my divorce sorted out. I'm sure his daughters wandered and probably snarked, but what was one going to do? We were traveling. There's a picture of us in the paper christening a new railroad line out in California. It was a whirlwind. Something like love, maybe for me, certainly for him. And eventually I made my mark there, and he set me up with an apartment on Riverside Drive overlooking the Waldorf Astoria. It was designed as a garden apartment, and so there was a little carriage roundabout. It was very, very elegant. You didn't have to be rich to live that way back then, and I started collecting all of that lovely furniture. Got a great deal on it from an auction. He got me into the Orpheum circuit, he paid for it all, and it was just a few drinks and some laughs every time he was in town. He taught us, your grandmother and me, about some of the finer things, what to order in a restaurant. He appreciated theater, all the best things in the world. 
Every producer in town was chasing me, but I'd slap their hands away after a few minutes because it wasn't fair to Henry. His wife had been socially prominent, and he loved her very much, but that was all over now, and he adored me. He loved me. He was good to me, loyal, just wanted to know someone was there, and I was, as much as one is. This isn't the only coat, but it is the nicest. And when your father says I was on my knees for it, well, it's a pretty soft place to fall when you have a closet of them afterwards. I kept my figure and my wits, and any man who criticizes that, well, he's not looking at the right women. She tosses back the rest and leaves a bill on the table and me. story of our program. This one is called The City Across the River by Michelle Chow. The boy stood with the wind in his eyes, mud beneath his feet, seven years in his pocket, and the city across the river stretched out before him. It was the spring of 1906. He peeked back at the home he was about to leave, frail arms trembling with nervous anticipation. Somewhere in the swamps, draped in fog, he knew his parents and 11 siblings were already up in the rice fields. With too many mouths to feed, his father was sending him into the city to be an apprentice, an exhilarating opportunity for the boy. There he had a chance at a better life, one that had never arisen even in his wildest dreams. He drank in the sweet balmy air around him and stepped with resolve into the old ferry that would carry him to his destination. The path of life stretched out seemingly endlessly before him, disappearing around hills and diving into valleys, taking turns that seemed surreal. Across the river stood the city shimmering arms wide open and ready to embrace him. His master was no nonsense, was a no-nonsense sort of man. Although harsh, you have to say this, he was a legend at his trade, which was shoemaking. Uh, the boy was now an apprentice. His day started before dawn and ended well past sunset, body limp with exhaustion from pounding leather and casting rubber heels. In exchange, he got three things, shelter, food, and knowledge. He loved it. Eleven years flew by. He couldn't be called an apprentice anymore and was a shoemaker in his own right. The day he left, his master embraced him as an equal. With a look of pride mingled with melancholy, he gazed at the boy's disappearing figure, head bobbing like a buoy in the harbor, rising and falling with each wave. The master took one last look, then stooped back under the old wooden door frame, then back into his shop. He was running behind on orders. The boy had built a reputation brick by brick, managing to open a shop of his own. He had just unlocked the doors one morning when the man with the strange hair stepped in. Our shoemaker was left with mouth tilted slightly open. Foreigners were rare in this part of the city. They managed to communicate through hand motions, and the, the man went out the door, a loyal customer. This was the gossip of everyone within a 10-block radius for a week. 
he eventually managed to teach himself some English at a time where nobody knew a word. This circulated for a clean month. He put all of his heart into his craft, never letting success blind him. He worked harder with each passing day. Soon, he had enough business to open a large store and buy his own house. As dependable as the rooster's crow, the sound of a mallet thudding on leather rang out every morning, mingling with rickshaw wheels rumbling on cobblestones and the smell of fried dough. He had never had the privilege of formal education. He didn't even know how to read. All the boy knew was the language of leather and thread, and that was enough. There had always been a pair of eyes peering out the neighbor's window, fringed with black lace and in full bloom. They had gazed out at the boy many a morning. They belonged to the daughter of a merchant whose shop was next door. Marriage was a simple thing back then. It was settled on a rainy day, the water washing away all past grievances. He was to be a diligent husband, she a hardworking wife. The boy had pushed off far from the docks and was soaring with the wind in his sails and the open sea before him. But a storm would soon come, waves lashing at his ship for 17 endless years. Two annihilating wars had stripped the shoemaker, now a father, of his home and his business. The newly formed government had decreed that all privately owned institutions had to be turned over. There was still bigger heartbreak ahead of him. He would have given all the material things in his life had he been able to save his wife, but alas, death didn't bargain. She died in premature labor, screams still ringing through the two dead air, the baby gone with her. He was the one left standing in the bitter rain with a family to feed. Uh, the seams of his life were ripping apart, leather cracking, dirty soles rubbed bare. He tumbled into sickness, paralyzed by the fear of, the fever of fear ravaging his mind, his footprints trampled and obscured. But, there was always his daughter there, coaxing homemade medicine down his throat. There was always his son coming home with the money his father couldn't earn them. Somewhere in his mind, he realized that his children would be orphaned and homeless if he died, and his will to live was awakened, a roaring beast, bursting through the chains of grief. Within a week, the father was up on his feet and had gotten new work in a factory. His leather and love had been burned, but he himself wasn't ready to become ashes. His daughter was only 11 when she lost the money, the month's salary he had given her to carry home. When she had gotten back, she realized the 10 crumpled bills were gone, dropped on the muddy street and picked up by a disgustingly fortunate stranger. That was their food for the month. They would starve on the streets without it. Face trembling with shame and tears tumbling down her cheeks, she had gone to her father. He didn't hit or even punish her, just looked down sadly. They went to the friends and neighbors and borrowed enough to get them through the month, paying it back over a year. The daughter never lost anything again in her life. He resented having to borrow, hated seeing his daughter so distraught over money that would have been trivial before the war. Every day for the next 20 years, you would see him walking down the street to the factory, nodding to street vendors and neighbors, a lunch of tea eggs swinging in his hand. 
Those are hard times, but he had work to do. Sitting on his rusty balcony, a peculiar sort of emotion hung in the air around him. His figure, though hunched, was still full of the vivacious spirit and tenacity of his youth. He had kept afloat all these years, rising and falling with the current. His children had grown up and were gone now, out in the city. Of course, they still loved him. He watched his grandchildren grow, wrinkled eyes lifting into a smile as they recited poems from school. He was satisfied to know that they were reaping the harvest he so painstakingly plowed and sowed for them. Over the 89 years of his long life, he had been a boy, an apprentice, a shoemaker, a father, a husband, a grandparent, and a legacy. 112 years after he crossed the river to the city, the boy's great-granddaughter had crossed an ocean to come back to it. She gazed out with wonder, eyes wide and lips slightly parted. Its almost ethereal columns rose above rippling clouds, humming with the sweet sound of life. Unaccountable stories shrouded in mystery were hidden in the folds of its gown. Unaccountable tales had begun and ended there. The city the boy had seen was long gone. In its place was one that would never have been in his wildest dreams. Ripening stars hung on branches in the sky, the fruit of the heavens. She could almost see the old man pick one with a smile that lifted the corners of his wrinkled face and offer it to her. The heavens were in his eyes, the sky was beneath him. Eighty-nine years were in his pocket, and the city across the river stretched out before him. contributors and performers that we've had today and to all of you who came and watched um, and experienced this uh, with us. Thank you so much. Because tonight is the Oscars and I'm inspired by Ellen DeGeneres. I'm going to try and take a selfie. So. <laughs> Museum. It's open for another 